What does one find at the end of oneself? When the options are exhausted, when strength fails, when ingenuity comes to naught, what's to be found in that terrifying place? That depends on who's around you. This is a story about surrender. It's a story about fear and faith, about gratitude and prayer. And it's a story about a God who's able to make a way where there is no way. A God who delights in meeting us at the end of ourselves. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Torchlight flickers on the ochre walls of the mastaba. Hushed Hebrew voices echo in the stairwell, further underground with each step. The last time feet trod these stones, they were bringing something down into this tomb. Tonight, these men will bring something up out of it. They must work quickly. There isn't much time. And they have a promise to keep. Calls for Israel's exodus rise in billowing clouds. As word of Pharaoh's permission spreads all of Egypt, person after person, grieving family after grieving family, begs the slaves to leave. They're filling the streets of Goshen, in fact. Egyptians shouting their terror, we are all going to die, pressuring the Hebrews to make haste and go. Inside the Israelites' houses, families play out variations of the same sequence. He stretches tunics out on the floor while she gathers shoes, a child's favorite toy, wooden spoons, a clay lamp or two, oil, the kneading bowl. She grabs for something else. There is no room, he says, and wraps the tunic around their meager possessions before draping it over her shoulder. The same with the gold and silver given to them by the Egyptians given to them. So strange. He wraps the clinking treasures, slings the fabric across his shoulders. And something for the road, for the children at least. Bring the dough. It hasn't even leavened yet. There's no time now. Into a fold of the tunic it goes. With trembling hands they wake their sleeping children, perhaps whispering to them, we're going on a journey. If the children ask where, all their parents can tell them is, away. In an astonishingly short amount of time, the road leading east floods with thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of men and women and children, and donkeys, and goats, and sheep, cows even, perhaps. It is a massive, motley parade. And with every step, fresh adrenaline courses within the Hebrews. Is this a dream? Are we really leaving? 
Are we free? This is not how it usually goes. Yahweh speaks to Moses, and Moses speaks to him. Aaron's pulse quickens as he anticipates a personal audience with the God of his mother and father, the God who saved his brother from Pharaoh's mass slaughter of infants, the God who seemed to be asleep for so long and now seems to have been watching, hurting, planning, waiting. And these days, speaking, speaking so much after generations of silence. What a strange thing to be his mouthpiece, to speak on behalf of this hail-making, frog-conjuring, firstborn-harvesting God, to stand against Pharaoh, power personified with deity over his shoulder. If his mother and father could see him now, if they could see them now, Aaron and Moses, reunited, brothers, partners, friends. Aaron had mourned this relationship, buried it under the grass of the delta when his little brother went to live with that woman. And now, resurrection. This is the statute of the Passover, says Yahweh to the brothers. Time to introduce them to the feast. Yahweh planted the seeds during that last meal in Egypt. Now it's Israel's job to water them and care for what's growing. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave may eat it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident may not eat the Passover. This is an observance for those who belong. It is to be eaten by each family in one house. This is a time for togetherness. Consecrate every firstborn male to me, the firstborn from every womb among the Israelites, both man and domestic animal. It is mine. This is a reminder that all precious life belongs to Yahweh and that sometimes death is life's cost. Aaron and Moses listen, nod. And then they tell the people what Yahweh has told them. 
Aaron speaks? Or is it Moses who lifts his voice to the crowd, more confident every day he spends with deity? Remember this day, he calls across the expanse of people. When you came out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, for Yahweh brought you out of here by the strength of his hand. And then Moses tells them about the feast. Nothing leavened may be eaten. When Yahweh brings you into the land, he swore to your ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey, you must carry out this ceremony. For seven days you must eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there is to be a festival to Yahweh. The people nod, hope rising at the thought of a land that is their land. You are to present to Yahweh every firstborn male of the womb. Faces fall. Wait, are we to lose our children like the Egyptians? All firstborn male offspring of your livestock will be Yahweh's. You may redeem every firstborn of a donkey with a flock animal, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redemption. So one life given for another. However, you must redeem every firstborn among your sons. So our sons are to be given to Yahweh, but we're also to hold on to them. A sovereign God do every precious thing who lets us keep what's due him. In the future, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Tell them, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Yahweh killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both humans and livestock. Tell them, this is why I sacrifice to Yahweh all of the firstborn, but I redeem all the firstborn of my sons. Ritual as vessel. Story stoppered inside. Moses, redeemed son saved from death, looks out at the children of Jacob and says finally, So let it be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead, for Yahweh brought us out of Egypt by the strength of his hand. Cheers rise from among the people. Time now, at last, to leave. Strange timing, this meeting about a feast that's to take place years from now. Here, on the cusp of their freedom, with so far to travel and so few provisions for the journey, here in the middle of the night, is the Passover plan so pressing that it must be communicated now? Perhaps it isn't. Perhaps its inclusion at this point in the narrative record of Israel's exodus does not indicate chronological placement. After all, there do seem to be more pressing matters. But even if only in the text, it appears Yahweh decides now is the time before his people even set a foot outside of Egypt, before the event is finished, the memorial is planned. Could remembering 
be this vital? Moses, head tilting, brow furrowed, transfixed, moves toward the light. Like the bush at Horeb, but more, so much more. A pulsing column of fire has swirled into existence before him and all the Israelites. It moves as they move, leading the way. Little children, ooh and ah, pointing at the miracle as its reflection dances in their eyes. Old men, young women, fathers and grandmothers and five-year-olds with their mouths agape wonder and follow. What else is there to do? Yahweh smiles, free at last, and no longer half-naked, dressed in the loincloths of slaves, but robed and fine cloaks, laden with silver and gold, like the family of a king. Moses notices, surely, as they follow the fire, that they're not headed north. Why not north? North is the way out. But to the north, Yahweh knows, lie the warlike Philistines. Conflict would be inevitable. The fledgling Hebrews would retreat and return to Egypt, choosing the hardship they know, in spite of it being the greater evil by far. And so, east it is, toward the wilderness, toward the sea. Somewhere near the front of the massive procession, somewhere near Moses and Aaron, a cart trundles under the weight of a sarcophagus. Egyptian-made, but noticeably void of any depictions of Amun-Ra, Horus, Anubis. Or perhaps there is no sarcophagus. It was left behind in the mastaba, its contents taken carefully packed in a satchel and now swaying in time with the gait of a donkey. Whether they are still entombed in a stone coffin or they've been exhumed and stowed in a more portable container, one man's bones accompany the Israelites as they say goodbye to the land of Pharaoh. 400 years ago, Joseph, Egyptian slave come royalty, looked at his family before he died and made them swear an oath. God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. How did he know they would need aid? All of Joseph's family knew about his great-grandfather's encounter with El Shaddai, the Almighty God. The night he told Abraham, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve 
and afterward they will go out with many possessions. Joseph knew he'd be long dead when that happened, but the promise of leaving was enough. He wanted to go home, and so he made his people swear that when the day of Yahweh's deliverance came, they would take his bones with them. And so they have. Once in Canaan, they will lay Joseph's remains to rest. But there are miles to go before he sleeps. What have we done? Lost in sullen reflection for days, the Pharaoh has had a revelation. This was never about a time of worship. They are not coming back. We have released Israel from serving us. Even if they're terrified at the thought of crossing the Israelites and their God, Pharaoh's attendants nod in obsequious agreement. The king tightens his grip on his royal flail. This is a mistake that's easy enough to correct. The Israelites are unarmed, vulnerable, and, according to recent intelligence, they're lost, wandering in a zigzag pattern, boxed in by the wilderness. Fools. The trap is set. Horses snort and stomp, leather creaks, soldiers shout instruction, and the chariots of Pharaoh are readied. Each chariot is not only an instrument of conquest, but a work of art. The outer shell made of boiled leather, pressed into an intricate mold and wrapped around the wooden frame where it becomes a rigid shell. Each shell is a tapestry of hieroglyphs and illustrations, horses galloping, warriors thrusting spears, slaves bowing in defeat, victors drinking the blood of their enemies from bejeweled pitchers. Inside, facing the charioteers, more artwork. Mighty gods squashing enemy soldiers beneath their hands, vanquished people tied by their necks and led away as slaves. And in addition to this ornamentation, the deadly vehicles boast masterful engineering. Lightweight construction, leather suspension, reinforced wheels, a mind-boggling turning radius. Armies have swords and shields. Empires have chariots. And Pharaoh has called hundreds, thousands perhaps, of his into action. As the killing machines are harnessed, rituals, no doubt, are performed in preparation for the attack. Priests recite spells, speaking the enchantments over clay figurines representing the Hebrews. They lash the statuettes with rope and throw them in the fire, symbolizing and ensuring their opponent's demise at the hand of Egypt's gods. Pharaoh watches, war throbbing in the veins of his neck as his incredible army amasses. All of the might of Egypt soon to come crashing down on these impertinent, defiant peasants. His chest swells and Yahweh obliges, gives Pharaoh what he has chosen again and again, a heart calcified and non-porous, where cosmic truth is unwelcome 
and delusion rules. The king issues the command. Silver trumpets sound and an innumerable mob of foot soldiers, horsemen, chariots, and horses floods out of the city gates toward the Hebrews who are camped against the sea. Moses! A breathless runner stumbles into view, eyes wild with fear, and grabs Moses' tunic. Surely someone rushes like this to tell him, but if they do, there's no beating the racing wave of terror. Before the young man can tell Moses what's wrong, Moses hears it. A cry rising from the people, panicked voices, shouts, and then screams. They're coming. First, the Hebrews pray. In the shadow of the massive pillar of cloud that replaced the column of fire at sunrise, Yahweh's name crosses countless pairs of quivering lips for the first time. Men and women begging him for protection, deliverance. But then, as the sea looms limitless on one side and on the other, the thundering of Egyptian chariots grows louder, the people turn on Moses. What have you done? Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Children are crying now. Many leaders would be overwhelmed by the burgeoning mutiny, paralyzed by the advance of this ferocious sovereign. But Moses has seen too much. He has lost his faith in Pharaoh. He climbs onto a rock and shouts to the people, Don't be afraid! Stand firm and see Yahweh's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The people blink at him incredulously. How? Moses stands atop the rock, resolute, fire in his bright eyes. Yahweh will fight for you. You must only be quiet. Behind Moses, the sea. Alien to the land-bound Hebrews who've never seen an expanse of water like this, even its color is foreign, it reaches into the distance, hulking and featureless, barren as the desert behind them, but even more deadly. The earth now rumbles, shaking at the approach of the most powerful army in the world. All of Israel holds their breath, and Moses prays. Why are you crying out to me? Moses' eyebrows rise, surely, at this response from Yahweh. But before he can answer, Yahweh continues, Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Go through the sea? As for me, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after you. 
and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army, his chariots, and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. Did Moses even hear anything after the part about the army going in after them? Motion at the front of the Israelite throng. Someone makes a beeline toward the opposite side of the vast crowd, the side facing the oncoming army. Swift, decisive, self-assured, this is not one of the Hebrews. Generations will ask exactly who or what it was, this presence, this protector. But they will have to make do with the simple appellation given by Yahweh's storyteller. It is the angel of God. With this shift, the enormous pillar of cloud moves as well, disintegrates, swirls in the direction of the approaching chariots, horses, and soldiers, and forms again between the bloodthirsty horde and the children of Yahweh. How close are the Egyptians now? A mile? Half a mile? Less? In the west, where their mighty dust cloud rises, the sun is setting. Red light dominates the horizon, catches on the billowing edges of the cloud pillar towering above the Hebrews. Pinks, oranges, deep reds, it's as if the sky itself has been bathed in blood. And now, darkness falls. Lightning flashes within the cloud. The vapor burns away. Fire rages. The pillar is alight. Amidst the Egyptian army, Pharaoh and his officers try to calm their men. In front of them, a colossal monolith of flames suddenly eclipses the darkness and threatens to consume them. Get back! Move back! The officers shout instructions to the soldiers, cavalrymen, and charioteers. Horses rear, the king's bronze scale armor flashes in the night, his arms scald as the metal obediently sucks up heat from Yahweh's column of fire. Egypt's warriors retreat for a moment, regroup, gather their wits, steel themselves for a battle against this enemy god and his pets. But they cannot cross the wall of flame. And so they wait. The sea lies just beyond the Israelites. It's perfect. Prayers rise, certainly, from sadistic Egyptian faces to Nun, god of the waters. Boundless, dark, a tempest unto himself. It is from noon's inky, churning sea that Amun-Ra rises each day, a picture of his original world-ordering act of creation. Now the slaves are hedged in, caught between Ra's pharaoh and Noon himself. They have no chance. Amidst the Israelite forces, men cradle their wives and children, Parents whisper comfort to their daughters and sons. Prayers rise, more garbled collages of emotion than articulated requests. And Moses walks through the darkness toward the sea. Salt air fills his lungs as he inhales. He lifts his hand, 
raising his staff above the opaque waters. His arm trembles, perhaps, but the wood points across the expanse in dauntless prophecy. The folds of Moses' clothing begin to flutter, flap, whip. His hair comes to life, wild with motion, as an east wind awakens and crescendos. Five-year-olds squint, grandparents shield their faces with forearms, rumbling, whistling sounds, raucous in their ears. Everyone's skin alive as the wind rushes across the hairs on their arms, their beards, their eyelashes. Mist fills the air, lifted from the surface of the water and blown back through the throng of Hebrews, pelting the fire. But the flames only burn brighter. And then Moses' jaw grows slack as the hurricane breath of Yahweh drives the sea back against itself, piling the waters higher, higher, knifing a depression and then a valley and then a canyon in the midst of two liquid cliffs. Men and women and children stare, transfixed by the power of this way-making God. But the sound of Egyptian warriors shouting to one another behind the firewall breaks their trance. They follow, hearts roaring, as Moses steps into the chasm. It's, it's like a dream. A nine-year-old girl, perhaps, stops 40 yards in, bends down to examine the spiked shell of a spider conch. Her fingers draw shallow grooves in dry sand as she picks it up, eyes wide, turning the alien thing in her hand. Further in, obsidian walls of seawater tower now above, flickering with the enchanted light of the column at the rear of the Israelite mass. Every so often, the caravan splits, giving way to small mountains kaleidoscoped with fantastic colors and shapes, branching scarlet, mushroomed tangerine, orbs of periwinkle, laced viridescent fans, all clustered and arrayed in harlequin exuberance. Yahweh smiles as his people gasp and gaze. When he created Coral, did he have this moment in mind? The wasteland behind them sits in dooned silence, a perfect obverse to this wonderland below. Those at the edges of the channel glimpse shadowy motion every so often. The silhouetted forms of lionfish hammerhead sharks, spinner dolphins, and enormous leatherback turtles, curious, perhaps, at the sight of their new neighbors. But the Egyptians are foaming, and as the Hebrews plunge further into the sea, the column of fire follows behind them. In time, the Egyptians have a clear path to enter. Should they? Is there a chance that the flames will disappear and leave the slaves unprotected? What if it doesn't? All good questions, but Pharaoh has only one thing on his mind. With the portal still open, he screams the order to advance, wisdom consumed in confidence, sending his vast army into the breach. 
horsemen whip their mounts into a frenzied gallop. The swarm of chariots surges forward. Countless ranks of foot soldiers race, swords aloft into the glowing heart of the sea, the arched blades of each kopesh flashing with murderous intent. Deeper. Deeper. Then, dawn breaks. Yahweh splashes color into the sky, paints the sea a brilliant cobalt, and transfigures the fiery monolith, flame to fog. Brush in hand, he now stipples confusion into the minds of the Egyptians. Chariot wheels fail, horses buck, men panic as the sun brings the depths of the surrounding sea into view, illuminating the fullness of their vulnerability. We need to go back, someone shouts. Yes, away, away from Israel. Viral fright infects one warrior after another. With white-capped hearts, they cry to Ra, curse the dirty slave race. Yahweh is fighting for them against Egypt. The warriors swivel to the west, away from the rising sun. But it's too late. Stretch out your hand over the sea. Moses nods obediently at the voice of Yahweh as the last Hebrew steps out from between the waters onto the eastern shore. Moses' staff rises steady in his hand, pointing into the gulf, and Yahweh releases his grip. A tsunami crashes down onto the wild-eyed Egyptian army, swords swinging reflexively, horses tumbling, crushing their riders, chariot frames snapped like eggshells, screaming mouths stuffed with sea, soldiers twisting in the corkscrew current, javelins and battle axes dismissed as flotsam and jetsam, utter annihilation. And then, quiet. Jagged peaks left as scant evidence as the sea calms, rocks, then finally comes to rest, clutching new secrets. On the shore, all of Israel stands witness, faces awash with shock, with fear, with gratitude, with worshipful tears. Across the water, not even visible now, the empire lies broken, impotent, defeated. Freedom. Moses turns from the sea and looks at Aaron, hope shining on his older brother's face. And then Moses looks at the people. They look at him, and in their eyes, every last one of them, it's clear. They believe. They believe in Yahweh. And they believe in Moses. As evening falls, campfires. Tents made from Egyptian cloaks stretched above yawning Hebrew boys and girls. Simple suppers of unleavened bread, 
shared between families and friends. Grandfathers tell the little ones the story of their forefather, Joseph. He's with us, right over there. And music, mostly singing, though some make an effort perhaps with silver trumpets washed up on the shore. Old songs surface, dredged from deep memory by the buoyant joy of fresh deliverance. The lyrics almost forgotten and now resurrected in full-throated praise to Yahweh. But in this moment, old songs are not enough. A new song, then. Moses takes the lead, his strong hands lifted to the heavens alongside his faltering voice. I will sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. A graphic beginning, perhaps, but he continues, emboldened by adrenaline, by the surging joy of the moment. Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Aaron grins and adds, My father's God, and I will exalt him. Another voice. Yahweh is a warrior. Still others lift their scarred arms to the heavens and sing, Yahweh is his name. As Yahweh looks on, does he shed tears? Surely he does. It's one thing to know someone you love. It's another for them to know you. Moses embraces Aaron. The brothers listen as their kinsmen continue the song, sing along when a line repeats. And then a new song joins the chorus. Someone has found a tambourine. Moses laughs, perhaps, and looks from the instrument to the face of the one who holds it. She makes eye contact with the unlikely leader of the Hebrews. Her lips curl into a smile. Miriam beams at her little brother and dances along, leading a growing procession of women with more tambourines. Is that Zipporah in the line? They wind their way into a circle, and Miriam lifts her voice to her sisters and to her God. Sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. More voices. Does Gershom sing as well? Does Moses grin as his grandchildren join the worshipers? The lines are starting to blur between these people and his people. Yahweh smiles. Justin here. Thanks so much for listening. I hope Rite and Passage blessed you. Creating this episode was such a joy. I just loved working with my composer, Kendall Ramsour, to tell this incredible story in a way that I hope transported you and leaves you feeling closer to Yahweh. 
This is the conclusion of part one of the Exodus. Kendall and I will be working hard over the next several weeks to get a head start on part two of this season, which should be available next month. Our plan is to resume the season on April 26th with episode six, which I cannot wait for you to hear. Now, between now and then, Kendall and I will be teaming up for a behind-the-scenes look at this season's score, which Kendall has lovingly crafted by hand for each episode. We're going to let you in on our process, dissect a few of our favorite scenes, and show you all kinds of stuff that I'll bet you missed. Maybe you didn't. I'll be impressed. I'll drop that as a bonus episode right here in the feed when it's ready. I think you'll love it. And if you're not a patron of the show, you should head over to Patreon and become one now because there are a couple of short episodes I'll be releasing during the break that will be available for patrons only. I'm going to go back to a couple of things we didn't have time to cover in these last five episodes, including what's generally accepted as one of the strangest paragraphs in the entire Bible. Exodus 4, 24 through 26, where it seems Yahweh tries to kill Moses and Zipporah does something super weird with their son's foreskin. It's, well... I'm really looking forward to giving it the Holy Ghost Stories treatment. Uh, Jump in on Patreon so you don't miss that. Without listeners regularly becoming patrons, Holy Ghost Stories would quickly cease to exist. So thanks in advance. More as always in the latest, the twice a month email I send out that in the words of my wife, I go way too hard on. You can subscribe for free at holyghoststories.org and see if you agree. Finally, this episode was brought to you by the incredible generosity of Dale and Rita Brown. What a joy it is to partner with people who believe in the enchanted power of story to draw hearts to the Father. And that certainly includes the Tours, the leaders of the potent pack of patrons who make this podcast possible. Daniel O., Daniel H., Deborah, Riley and Autumn, Valerie, Travis, Steve, Shannon, Kara, Dawn, Catherine, Jean-Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Stephanie, Vicenta, Cheyenne, Helen, Debbie, Scott and Susan, Derek, Maddie, Eric, John, Ricky, Mark, Kimmy, Stephen, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken and Patty, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie. Thanks for your sea-splitting generosity. Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios. Our composer is Kendall Ramsour. Our sound engineer is Joel Dolly. Manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt. Research, writing, narration, and direction by me, Justin Gerhardt. Till next time. 